Good morning, everyone. It's always a uh, pleasure to be up here with all of you. Um, And this morning, we're going to be continuing our series of messages that we've been doing on key psalms of the Old Testament, um, key Davidic psalms um, in the life of King David. So psalms that specifically speak to specific events that occurred in David's life. Now, Pastor John has faithfully opened up for us the the book of 1 Samuel. And we've seen David go through a number of ups and downs, uh, challenges, disappointments, and and sweet moments as well. And these psalms that we've done together, as we've seen, speak to the heart in the character of this young shepherd, made warrior, and eventual king. In our time together, we've seen David become greatly affected by a threat upon his life by Saul's assassins, um, and also overwhelming guilt and sadness um, due to the massacre at Nob, the city of priests. And as we've seen through Pastor John's preaching, um, David's life doesn't kind of mellow out. It kind of just gets worse, and it flares up, and when there's a calm, there's something else comes up. Um, so this time in David's, young David's life is very active and I'm sure very, very stressful. And in the psalm that we're going to look at together this morning, it's written in the heights of one of those times of tension. And as we read it, I want you to take notice of David's tone. He doesn't shout with an emotional cry, as as we've seen in the last two psalms that we've looked together, but he begins with this humbled prayer. Psalm 54, which is the psalm that we'll be reading this morning, recounts the emotions, the thoughts, the character of this young king in the midst of betrayal, as Pastor John had read for us just a few moments ago, by his own neighbors, his own kinsmen. They were of the uh, tribe of Judah, the the Ziphites. And the psalm ends with this genuine, heartfelt thanksgiving towards God. And we'll focus on that in a moment. So let's put the text in front of us this morning. So Psalm 54. Psalm 54. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return evil, the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. A relatively short psalm, but David is recorded in Scripture. And the authority of Scripture, both in the Old and the New Testament, is a man who is after God's own heart. And it would be safe to assume that he wasn't born that way. Trials and, and challenges throughout his life kind of molded it. Um, and I'm sure that these cave trials, if they were, this uh, time where he's t- taking short-term rent in the caves in the wilderness of Judah, um, are, I'm sure, a strong means that God had used to shape this heart. Shape this heart that so seeks desperately to please God and seek God's will in his life. So in this short time, as we read from our verse from the, earlier this morning, David has undergone quite a bit of betrayal. Doeg the Edomite told Saul that he went to sit, visit the priests in the city of Nob, and what happened? They, he killed them all. The citizens of Keilah, which is prior to what Pastor John had read, were saved by David's men, and he was told by God that, look, if you stay around, they'll betray you. So it didn't happen, but it, the betrayal was there all the same. And now he's being betrayed by his own kinsmen, his own neighbors, if you will, the Ziphites. And he would almost be handed over to Saul if it wasn't because the Philistines took advantage and started attacking Israel, causing Saul to flee and address that issue. So 
a lot of betrayals going on in David's life right now. And this prayer, this psalm that we just read, was probably written after David had received word that the Ziphites had betrayed him, and he's now fleeing five miles south. Um, And this is more than likely when he wrote this psalm. Now, as we look at it, it's really nothing new. We've heard it before. Lord, another group of ruthless men have risen against me. Save me, Lord. Vindicate me. Deliver me. And allow me to be triumphant over my enemies. You can tell David's a warrior, right? Triumph over my enemies. Let your justice not be restrained and bring about the punishment of the wicked and upon those who do not set you before themselves. But listen very, very closely. This is a key point of this entire psalm. What happens at the end of this psalm and this prayer is exactly what should happen to all of our musical worship, our deliberate prayer, and our heartfelt reflections. It's thanksgiving. It's this expression of gratitude, especially towards God. And as David thinks and says and writes this prayer out, he reflects. He reflects on his betrayal. He reflects on his situation. But he also reflects on his anointing, his victories, his deliverance, his friend, the king's son, and most importantly, his God. And when he does this, praying deliberately, singing intentionally, what bubbles forth from the soul and depth of David is gratitude towards God. And here's how it ends. We'll we'll read it one more time. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. The question here is, why not an offering of thanksgiving? They exist. Like in Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Well, like many offerings, including the offering of thanksgiving, they included a vow. A part on the individual making the sacrifice and the fulfillment of this vow would take place in the great congregation in the tabernacle so all could see that this vow was being fulfilled and show God's goodness towards the psalmist, towards God's goodness towards the individual that was offering this sacrifice of thanksgiving towards God. And we see this in Psalm 22, verses 25 and 26. For you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. They would eat the sacrifice. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. There's always a vow. Psalm 61, 8. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Psalm 66, 13. Again, I will come into your house with burnt out offerings. I will perform my vows to you. There's always a vow, except the free will offering. The free will offering had no vow, it was a voluntary, spontaneous offering not done out of obligation or to gain anything. It existed for the sole purpose of just expressing gratitude towards God. And it wasn't just a thank you, as custom dictates. Like I'm sure many of the Jews took the mandates of the law and the sacrifices, and Jesus had very choice words for those people in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guys, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Familiar words, I'm sure, to many of us. This is is the idea here. Gratitude is not an act of the will. You cannot force yourself to be grateful. You can try, but it's not genuine. It is because gratitude and thankfulness is a feeling. It's a good feeling. It rises in our heart spontaneously as a result of something. And we like it. That's why gratitude is a form of delight. Revelation 11, 15-17. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. Their delight is in the reign of God. Their thanksgiving is in the reign of God. But it's more than just that. It's more than just delighting in it. It is directed delight towards the giver, towards the one giving you this delight. They worshiped God. They fell on their faces towards God. Their thanks was directed towards God. And therefore, genuine thanksgiving, genuine gratitude is not only a feeling, but it's a directed feeling towards the person giving it. Let's give you an example real quick. Let's say you give a gift to a child, right? A few things can happen. One, they love it. And they just, they open it up and they're just like, wow, golly, this is amazing. It's so fluffy and warm, right? And then they just walk away and they start bragging to the other kids about their cool toy or their cool whatever you gave them. That's one thing that can happen. The other thing that can also happen is that they don't love it. And you get one of these. They rip it open and they're just like, wow, thank you, right? Sure, we've all done that on both occasions. See, in both instances, the children are ungrateful. They're ungrateful. It's because genuine gratitude is more than just delighting in the gift, which was the first child, and honoring a cultural custom, which was the second. You always say thank you. It's a happy feeling that is directed towards the person giving something good to you. It's, it's a happy feeling directed towards the person giving to you. But that's why Thanksgiving, and, and, and we're going to get into the psalm in a moment, but Thanksgiving in this sense, this form, this true, biblical, genuine sense of gratitude is not only in the object I was given something that I delight in, but in the actual act of giving. Not only do I enjoy this item, whatever it may be, but I enjoy and delight that the act was given to me. And that's why it's directed back towards the person. Thank you, individual being, person, for instituting this act towards me that I can now delight in what you have given to me. And the more undeserving the gift is, the greater the feeling and the flourishing of gratitude itself. So when God gives us the opportunity of salvation, that is the most undeserved thing possible, not only do we enjoy salvation, I am free of my, my condemnation before God. If you only had that, you would be bored out of your mind. There's no point of being forgiven for just forgiveness, forgiveness sake. What are you going to do with it? It's the fact that God's character and His attitude towards me is so, one, undeserved, but so beautiful that I have to give it to the giver. And that's what completes gratitude itself. 2 Corinthians 4. Fourteen and fifteen. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring and bring us with you into his presence. There's the goal. For it is all for your sake. So as grace extends to more and more people, more and more people receiving this grace, it also increases thanksgiving to the glory of God. To the glory of God. So the treasure in this psalm the treasure of Psalm 54 is its precious roadmap that it leaves us of genuine thanksgiving to God 
through the reflections of Israel's most revered monarch. So let's examine these reflections of David leading to this genuine thanksgiving to God despite the intensity of his situation and let's use it let's use it to to in our prayers in our songs in our reflections in our worship towards God. So let's look at the first reflection and that's God's love of prayer. God's love of prayer. Verses 1 through 3. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. And they do not set God before themselves. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Psalm 59, the first psalm that we looked at together, the first two verses, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. Very, very similar. David went through this a lot throughout his life. But verse 2 is unique in this one. It says, O God, hear my prayer and give ear to the words of my mouth. You know, I imagine David's just looking up. I mean, they just, hiking five miles in, the, in, the, in a mountainous terrain is like hiking 20, I guess, in the flat, if not more. So they're probably exhausted. But he's looking up, as most of us would do in this situation. His men are exhausted from fleeing after hearing word that the Ziphites had betrayed them. In the cover of night, which I would assume it's easier to move that much people in a camp, tired and cold because of the arid desert, he looks up to a sky that I'm sure many of us have, minimal of us have ever experienced. The words of my mouth, my thoughts, my feelings, my pains, my struggles, what is coming out of my mouth is the best representation I have of what's going on right now. And yet, they've reached your ear. My squeaky little voice in this pinpoint of existence, in this humongous universe, and you hear it. You hear my squeaky voice amongst all the other noise. You're listening to me. And not only that, he wants to listen to you. He loves to listen to you. Some of the most precious moments I think we have ever had or ever will have is realizing the grandness of what we're actually doing. That when we come on our knees and we speak to God, that we are speaking to the creator of existence. We are speaking to a God who has never had a beginning, never will have an end. I, I, we don't do that enough. I don't do that enough. And David's reflection of this overtakes him to recognize that to God, prayer is sweet. It is sweet to God. Numbers 15, verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering, or a burnt offering, or a sacrifice, to fulfill a vow, or as a free will offering, or at your appointed feast, to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Revelation 5.8 And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I mean, to understand the gravity of this for a moment, we need, to, we need to understand something. Why does God love prayer? I mean, why is it sweet? Why is it soothing? Why is it a pleasing aroma to Him? So much so that He has it in golden bowls before His throne. Why? I mean, is He stressed out? 
Does he need the incense to focus better because keeping everything in existence is just so distracting and stressful and he just needs to relax and he needs the incense? Or does he need it to reassure himself that his plan of redemption didn't get out of hand and, you know, I didn't make a mistake? Or does he need it to fulfill the request of the prayers? You haven't given me enough incense. I can't do anything until you pray enough. Or, or maybe it's not, I'm not content until I get... 50 bowls. I have only three right now. I need more of them. No, God's already content. He has everything he needs. He doesn't need anything else. So God's enjoyment of prayer and his treatment of it, the fact that he has this special place for it, it's so great. And he collects all of them. He, all of them. All your prayers, they're collected. All of them. They're there. And why? It's because when we genuinely pray, we genuinely pray to our God, we cannot help but refocus. We can't. If you're genuinely praying, you are on your knees and you are praying to the Lord of the universe, you cannot help but refocus on the glory, the sovereignty, the majesty of who you're speaking to. And therefore, magnify God's glory in doing that. In the midst of prayer, we put our worries, our complaints, our troubles, our fears before God. And for a God-given moment, or if we're lucky, God-given moments, we realize the weight of glory. They're nothing. These worries are nothing. These pains are nothing. These issues are nothing. These complaints are nothing. They're indescribable when they're put next to the Lord of the universe. And one of my favorite quotes from Tozer, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. For he sees at once, as soon as you do it, that these things these issues, these matters that at most, at the very most, cannot concern you for very long. And they will be gone. Blaise Pascal, who I've quoted before, theologian of years past, uh, he was a fanatic about this. An absolute fanatic about this. He just couldn't understand why people were so lazy when it came to this stuff. Why? You can't just be still and take it in. This is what he said. We never keep to the present. We recall the past. We anticipate the future as if we found it too slow in coming to us. And we're trying to hurry it up. Or we recall the past as if its stay is too rapid. We are so unwise that we wander about in times that don't belong to us. And do not think of the only one that does. So in vain that we dream of times that are not. And blindly flee the only one that is. The fact is that the present usually hurts. We thrust it out of sight because it distresses us. And we find it enjoyable and when we find it enjoyable, we're sorry to see it slip away. We try to give it the support of the future and think, how are we going to arrange things over which we have no control? For a time, we can never be sure of reaching. Let, us eat, let each of us examine his thoughts, all of us, and we will find them wholly concerned with the past or with the future. We almost never think of the present. And if we do, it is only to see what light it throws on our plans of the future. The present is never our end. Thus, we never actually live, but hope to live. And since we're always planning how to be happy, it is inevitable that we should never be so. Heaven, it's indescribable, but I would just assume it's just an infinite moment of glory with God. It is, if you have eternity, there really is no future. There's just the now, forever and ever and ever and ever, and joy and happiness with God. It pleases God that we realize the worth of Jesus. When we pray, when we take time to genuinely pray, and we take time to really sing with our hearts, 
All these forms of worship that we do in church, that we do at home, that we do in our private time, all of these things, we read scripture, we reflect on, on a verse, we reflect on a doctrine of truth, we reflect on our lives and God's working in it. If we are genuinely doing these exercises, which are good Christian spiritual exercises, we will realize the worth of Jesus in ways that I don't think we've ever realized before. And that's why God loves prayer. Because in that, it forces us to be confronted with Him. To be confronted with who we're speaking to. You ever talk to somebody and not realize who you're talking to? The conversation usually does not end well. Oh, it's my boss that I was just telling all this stuff to. When we realize who we're speaking to, it changes the way we think. It changes our outcome. It changes our, the, the effect it has on us. So, he loves our prayers, but not only because they're sweet, but also because to God, they're not wasted. Prayer is not wasted. It is not wasted. Not one little prayer that you have ever prayed is ever wasted. I'm going to read Revelation 8, and I just want you to, for a moment, just take this in. Take what's being said here. When the land opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And the other angel came and stood out the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. We remember that. And the smoke of incense with the prayers of the saints rose before, the God, before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and the third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell in the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and the third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to all those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. We're not even done, and that's a horrific event. But did you notice? What started it? What started this? Your prayers. Your prayers were set ablaze by the wrath of God, the fire from the altar, and it was thrown on the earth. It was thrown on the earth. Your prayers, first of all, do not go unheard, and second of all, they are not wasted. The prayers of the saints are the means that God has chosen to bring about judgment on the world, to bring about justice upon the world. It's used as evidence before all, of wicked, all the wicked. They're, they're going to see the prayers of the saints ablaze with fire and the justice and the wrath will follow. And it justifies the destruction of their way of life. You think your prayers go unheard. You think your prayers mean nothing. The prayers of, of, of the 
people of God, the children of God, who before their execution, the prayers before, while they're in the midst of persecution, the prayers of being ridiculed, the prayers of being mistreated, of pro, being profaned, being, being slandered, being abused, being taken advantage of, all those prayers. These are the prayers of my saints. Now you will see, and my wrath will come. I mean, it's going to be terrible. We didn't even get to the other three. Do not ever think that God does not listen to you. Even your unanswered prayers are put to good use. And they're used for righteous, holy work of God. I mean, it is just incredible. Those cries of your prayers will silence all accusers. There was an article in People magazine. I do not have a subscription to People magazine, but I found the article in June of 2005. And it recounted the story of five-year-old Samantha, who was unfortunately the victim of a cruel and tragic murder. And what's the case against her abductor and her, her murder was DNA found in the form of teardrops on the passenger side of the car of the man. And it made her mark on the crime scene. <laughs> your prayers and even your tears, they're so personally yours and they are precious to God. And, and David sensed this because later he would write in Psalm 56, 8, you have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? We are not called to an easy life. Suffering is expected, but they are never wasted. It is never, ever wasted. So David starts this psalm with his supplication to God. The fact that God cares, he listens, he even stores our cries, whether in the form of prayers or whether in the form of tears. And he uses them. And when we realize the beauty of this, it makes our hearts swell with thanksgiving. Let us direct it towards him and be gracious to our God. David's second reflection, we'll see it in verse 4, is God's investment in creation. His investment in creation. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. See, not only does God listen to us, He actively helps us and upholds us. And David has experienced this on multiple occasions, the beauty of this. God cares about me. He helped me against the lions. He helped me against the bears. He helped me against Goliath. He helped me against the Philistines. He helped me against Saul. He's helped me against Saul's assassins. And even now in the betrayal of the Ziphites, God will deliver him. And that should produce gratitude in our hearts towards God, that His investment in His creation, and that's also us. We are His creation. He's invested in us. We look at the covenants. We look at Christ. What more should there be to be said if He's not invested in you? And He upholds your being moment by moment. And let's recognize, as David did, that God is 100% for you in Christ. He's 100% for you in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall I say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? For it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is interceding for us all. If God gave us Christ, which you, it's impossible to even imagine the gravity of that. I mean, it, you just can't. I encourage you to try. I think it's healthy to try, but you won't be able to. What, what, what didn't he give us in him as well? And the gravity of that, what does this mean? What does this mean? It means that the sacrifice and the work in the gospel of Jesus Christ was so complete, so complete, that only one thing determines God's attitude for us. It's mercy. Mercy, 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 mercy. And He's doing everything for our good. 
for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. I want to read this section of Scripture because when I read this, in the context of what we're talking about this morning, in, in my imagination, it almost felt like the Bible became a person speaking this to me. It was just so powerful, and I want to share it with you. Hebrews 10, 14 through 25. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them in their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice of sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So when times get difficult, the church needs to come more together. It's exactly what it says. John 1.16 For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Everything that happens to you in your entire life is grace upon grace, even the ones that don't seem very pleasant. It is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace because of Jesus. If you think anything else than that, then you take away the complete work of Christ. Christ's work is so perfect and so complete that there is only grace upon grace that is it. David knows, as we should know, that God is our helper and the upholder of our lives. And the second thing that David recognizes is God is steadfast. He is steadfast. No change. None. Whatsoever. And you know what that means? It means God's opinion of you will never change. God will never love you more than how He does right now. Right now. Because He loves you the most that He possibly can. And if you are saved, that is a sweet thing to know. The only thing that's going to change is us. Not Him. We will better realize the gravity of God's love towards us. And as a result of that, we will learn to love him more and more and more and more, but not the other way around. And that weight of glory is documented. It's in Christ's prayer to his father, John 17, 25 and 26. Oh, righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love for which, you have, for which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. God, God already loves you as if you're glorified. What do you think in the New Testament? Everything's in past tense. I mean, it is so encouraging that, to know that God, He loves you already as if you're a saint in heaven, perfect and, and justified and glorified, praising Him. Even though right now, there are many times we don't feel that way. He's unchanging. No change. David knows that God will uphold his life. He will bring to pass the promises towards him. And this delight is directed right back towards God in this genuine display of thanksgiving. And just will not rain. 
when God is done. It will not. Our application. We have a holiday this week, and it's a celebration of thankfulness and blessing towards God. And as we have learned this morning, the only people, and I mean this with as much sincerity as I can, the only people who truly experience deep, genuine, legitimate thanksgiving are those who know God. You can be thankful for your kids, you can be thankful for your job, you can be thankful for your prosperity, but who are you thanking? Yourself? Nature? The lottery machine? That gave you good looks and a good job or this or that? I mean, you didn't do any of that. It's so superficial. And why do you think our culture passes it over? They, they have nothing to be thankful for. They don't, they don't feel the, the weight of true gratitude. They don't feel it. We should. They don't. And I know within this body of believers, my, my church family, all of you, we as a group, We've, we've borne some weight of, of difficulties and tragedies over the years, and, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a lot of good to be, to be with one another, helping one another, carrying each other's burdens. And some of us, I'm sure, carry more than others, greater weights. But first and foremost, my first application from this, as we see, and in, in, in David is just reflecting in this. Stop living as if this is your only life. Stop living as if this is your only life. You may know this is not your life. I know it. But live that way. There are so many people who say God exists and then live their life as if He doesn't. Christ and the writers of the New Testament are constantly minimizing the importance of this life and lifting up the importance of the next. It doesn't mean this life doesn't have value. It does. But the one that comes is more important. Jesus speaks in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or Philippians 3, 7, and 8, the great church father, Paul, whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had or would have gotten, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. He says it twice. He's serious about this. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That should be our first thanks every single morning. I know God, and He knows me. That is a miracle. It is a miracle. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. When we take hold of the truths of these scriptures of all of Scripture, we will become an unstoppable armada against the attacks of the devil. And even our own sins. Learn to properly express your gratitude to God. Learn to properly express your gratitude towards God. Um, God is one of order. He is to be worshipped and praised in a way that is honoring to Him. David did a free will offering. It was outlined how he should do it. And that's what he did. He wanted, he had this feeling of delight and enjoyment and comfort and just, he wants to give it to God. So what does he do? He does a free will offering. He outlines this in his word, Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Don't waste your time with inefficient Gratitude and inefficient expressions of praise towards God. 
Don't waste your time. The days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, for the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, it's, it's a blueprint. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. How do we praise God? There it is. Why are we careful about what songs we sing up here? Why do we sing from our hymnals? Why am I not picking up a guitar and playing up here? Because I'm terrible at it. And we have people who are much better than I am to do that. Why is divorce so not acceptable within the church? Why is abortion looked upon so negatively in the church? Why, why is it important about what you do out of church? Why is church discipline to be endorsed? Why of all these things that people don't like about church? Because God is holy and he lays out his word on how he desires to be worshipped and praised and treated. It is not up to our sinful discretion of how we should worship God. But we must learn to rightfully enjoy Him and worship Him in the manner of which God has called us to do so. And when we do that, we get the most out of it. He knows what's better, not us. If you gave me a gift, real world example, if you gave me a gift, and I, I was generally grateful, and I wanted to show you how grateful I was. But my preferred expression of being grateful is taking it, running in the opposite direction, and screaming at the top of my lungs. That's just how I do things. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, would you consider that proper gratitude? Realistically, no. There's some people that would say, yeah, but realistically, no, you would not. Because that form of communication is not proper. Right? It doesn't relay to you as the giver that I am indeed grateful for the gift that you have given to me. And therefore, David performed the ceremonial free will offering to show his thanksgiving to God. And so we, in our worship services, show thanksgiving to God in the way that we have learned here. Because it's about him, not us. And when we act and when we worship and when we praise and when we pray and when we sing and when we give in accordance to how God has taught us, we gain the most out of it. We get the real feel-good feeling, not in our emotions, but in our depth of our souls that we feed off of day after day after day and want more and more and more because it is sweet. And the last one I will leave you with is to treasure your salvation. Treasure your salvation. I've alluded to this a little bit earlier, but everything in life and creation revolves around the gospel of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything, absolutely everything. The snow's on the ground to glorify Jesus. Everything. And the fact that God has brought you, for those of you that are saved, those of you that know the Lord Jesus, the fact that God has brought you to himself, awakened you by the Spirit, you should never have anything not to be grateful for, ever. Times of tragedy and sorrow, there's a time for that. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, for, every, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. But you will always have a reason to be grateful and always have a reason for gratitude towards God. And I pray and I hope that the reason for your rejoicing be full of thanksgiving towards God and that you, what, what, with, from this scripture and just David's example, allow the practice of prayer, singing, reflection, be the instrument to produce genuine thanksgiving to God. It will enhance your spiritual life in a way that I can't even describe to you because I need to do it as well. David was a man after God's own heart, and it is only fitting that he was also the grand composer of the Bible. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Heavenly and Holy Father, 
may we feel the weight that we can even address you that way. May we feel the weight that we are able, able to enter into prayer in our sinful condition. Even though we may be redeemed, we are still sinful, and it bears its mark on us until the day of Christ Jesus. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit convict us deeply in areas that we need to be convicted, but also encourage us and give us joy and hope and gratitude in areas that are needed as well, Father. May the weight of glory, the weight of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the beauty of it and what it truly is, be shine brightly in our hearts and our minds this morning. That the veil of the enemy and the attacks of the enemy and even our own sinful laziness, may that be shunned from this moment as we come before your throne of grace, your throne that is emblazed in fire, that even perfect beings cover themselves because they cannot look at you. But the fact that you have given us the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that we are able to see you face to face when the day comes. May the truths of Scripture be planted deep within our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, I pray for these, this church. I pray for everyone that is here. First and foremost, for salvation, for those that don't have it. It is a gift from you, and I pray for that for all of us. But also for growth, that we continue to seek your face day after day, and that we continue to be moved by your Spirit to recognize and realize the wonder and the glory and the beauty of your, the majesty of Christ Jesus. May you use this church, Lord. May you give us that, that mission to share this with all those who will listen. And may they may come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we do have a holiday this week that is intended for us to take time apart from what we do normally to give thanksgiving to you. And I pray that that occurs in each of our hearts and minds in a special and powerful way this season. And as we look towards this holiday season that is really all about you, Father, and your work on this earth, may the spirit of your word be floating within our minds and with our hearts daily. And may it just incite a revival, not only in this church and individuals, but also this community, and that the name of Jesus Christ may be magnified, and that we may end the year this year with joy and just hopefulness towards the next. For your day is coming, and we pray for it to come soon. And we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which we do all things. Amen.